Hello everyone and welcome. This is Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. And I'm pleased to welcome you to this episode of the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. This episode features Lawrence Goldstone, author of Higher, Steeper, Faster, The Daredevils Who Conquered the Skies. I'm super excited about this month's podcast because I am a nonfiction lover. I know some of you enjoy poetry. I know some of you are enraptured by novels, but nonfiction is where it's at for me. And Higher, Steeper, Faster is a fascinating look at the daredevils and daredevilettes who ventured into the blue sky yonder. This book has received starred reviews from Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, and School Library Connection magazines. Welcome, Lawrence. Thank you, Victoria. Well, Lawrence, as I said, some people super enjoy fiction, and I know you have actually written fiction for adults as well as some nonfiction projects aimed at adult readers. What is the allure of nonfiction? Each genre has its has its own draw. Uh, in nonfiction, of course, you get to tell stories about real people. Um, you are, of course, limited to what actually happened, but one of the things that's so much fun is that you discover that nonfiction characters can be every bit as exciting and every bit as as captivating as anybody you can make up in a fictional novel. In this in this particular book, there was a man named Lincoln Beachy who was probably the greatest aviator that ever lived. And with, with apologies, I know people have heard of Chuck Yeager and, and the right stuff, and Chuck Yeager did amazing things. But what Lincoln Beachy did in airplanes that were simply frames, there was no cockpit, nothing protecting me. He would go up 10,000 feet in a suit. Only I, some of the aviators had to stuff newspapers in their clothes to keep warm. Their fingers froze. There were no instruments. When I read about BG, and no one's heard of him in contemporary in the contemporary world, and most aviation experts haven't heard of him, and you find a character like that, and it's so exciting because you get to bring this real person back to life, which is something you obviously can't do in fiction. Now, fiction is great fun, too, because um, I, I do historical fiction, and I try to stay very close to the actual history. And there are times in nonfiction where there's just not information. And in fiction, you can find ways to fill in the gaps. So each of these ways of approaching history has enormous allure. But I, I must say I prefer nonfiction. It's more challenging because you have to go and find the information. You have to, in some ways, resurrect these characters that have been lost. But when you do, the excitement is just, it's so immense, and it's so much fun putting these characters on the page. And in, in this book, Higher, Steeper, Faster, it was particularly fun for me because in addition to Lincoln Beachy, there were so many other aviators, early aviators, that did amazing things that no one's ever heard of. Now, I'll give you one more example. Uh, everyone's heard of Amelia Earhart, but no one has ever heard of Harriet Quimby. And Harriet Quimby was the first woman to ever receive a pilot's license. She was the first woman to fly across the English Channel when that was a really big deal. She was an actress 
one of the, considered one of the most beautiful women in America. She was a screenwriter. She wrote screenplays for D.W. Griffith. She was a journalist and was a race car driver all in 35 or 40 years of life. She, she did this, this, this incredible series of things. And there are, when I first saw photographs of her, um, it, it just, it, it knocked me out. She, she invented a purple flying suit, which converted into, a, into like a dress. And she had, and it had a hood, and it was totally distinctive. And there was a beverage, a particularly bad-tasting soft drink called Vin Fizz, which was made out of grapes. And they made her Harriet Quimby, their you know their kind of poster person, because of the blue flying suit. So you discover you discover these people. One last thing about Harriet Quimby: after she uh, flew across the English Channel, it was very foggy, and she had no instruments. And she landed in this small village, and the people—it was a fishing village on the coast of France—and the local people ran down to the coast and lifted the, lifted Harriet Quimby on their shoulders and carried her f away from the coast. And there was a photographer there and took a picture of it and, and uh, the picture's in the book. So I mean, just, it, it, it's really, really fun to be able to do this sort of thing. These are the sorts of stories that I, I love to hear about nonfiction because I agree with you. Real life is so much more fascinating and, and frankly befuddling just because it's real life. I mean, you can't make this stuff up sometimes. And why would you want to? Because real life is so much more interesting. And now I have just written down for myself a note to, to find out everything I can about Harriet Quimby. After Higher, Steeper, Faster, I may not have many more resources, but now a challenge has been accepted. And I suspect for many young readers of this book, that challenge will also be accepted. I know in the course of doing your projects, you do a huge amount of research on primary sources all over the place. How does research surprise you? Well, research, not only does the research surprise me, and I'll get to that in a second, but the sources of the research surprise me. And the age of the internet has it has a lot of pluses and a lot of minuses and there are certainly a lot of parents who think their kids spend too much time on the internet but for researchers it is like it is like stumbling into a cave and finding bars of gold for aviation for example in the early 1900s when this book is set there were a number of aviation magazines that came out. One of them was called Aeronautics, another one was called Air Aircraft, and these magazines had articles, photographs, ads, editorials, all, sort, all the same things you find in modern magazines. And these magazines are available online. Not just the articles, not just the text, but the actual photographs of each page of the magazine. And if you leave through aeronautics, which started in 1907 and started with mostly with balloons because really fixed-wing aircraft 
didn't really start becoming publicly known until 1908 or late 1907. You see the ads for things like vulcanized rubber, which they were using for the balloons. And as and, and as aeronautics got a little in 1908, 1909, you think, find things for wheels because people built their own airplanes. There were, if you go through aeronautics and aircraft magazine, you see plans on how to build airplanes because it wasn't like today where there's a thousand instruments and a lot of electronics and computers. These planes, people put them together with metal pieces of pipe and they made the wings out of uh, spars of wood with muslin, treated muslin. That's how the Wright brothers flew. So you get to see all of the photographs which are never have never been seen outside of these magazines. There are photographs of higher, steeper, faster that have never been reproduced, have, have never been put in books before. So you find going through, I can sit at my computer and you page through these magazines, these journals, and it is so much fun. You look at the ads, you look at the photographs, you look at the, um, the editorials about, you know, what kind of the future of flying, and of course, sometimes they were right, and most times they were wrong. What is surprising in the research is a little bit different, because the way history is generally passed down, it is one success to another. This led to this, led to this, led to this. But what you don't often get in most history, good history you do, is all the false starts, all the places where they went wrong, things that looked like they were going to work but didn't. And sometimes the, the things that appeared to work and didn't, we would laugh at today and say, who could ever have believed that? But they are natural extensions of the way people were building airplanes. And these were perfectly reasonable ideas on how to move aviation forward. Some of them were by the Wright brothers. The Wright brothers developed a way to control an airplane by warping the wings. They kind of twisted the wings because the wings were braced with wood and made of fabric. You can't do that in a metal airplane. So what is surprising generally are some of the people that you never hear of who were doing things that were actually extremely clever but might not have worked. And all the dead ends, what it really took to get to a point that, that aviation moved forward. The one person who had the idea that was a little bit different than what everyone else was doing. And that is really, it was, it's, very, it's a lot of fun to do, and it gives you a fuller picture, and you meet, as before, a lot of very interesting people who are generally ignored because they weren't the winners. One example, there was an instructor at Yale named Edson Galladay, and he is, in fact, his, um, there, is a, there is a school, Galladay, a, a university for kids who can't hear. He is related to that family. And he was an instructor at Yale, and he went out and built a glider in 1899, which was four years before the Wright brothers flew at Kitty Hawk, using the same technology that Wilbur Wright came on later. And Wilbur Wright didn't know about it. It wasn't that he copied it, but this idea of wing warping, and Galladay went out in Connecticut, and he flew his glider successfully and controlled it successfully, which was the big deal back then. And he was going to experiment further, but he went back and he talked to his colleagues on the faculty at Yale, and they said, oh, Edson, nothing's ever going to come of this flying. It's silly. Go back.
back to the classroom, and he did. So instead of being the first man, if he would have simply put a motor on that glider, we would be talking today about Edson Galladay as the first man to, uh, to successfully fly a controlled uh, airplane instead of the Wright brothers. But he didn't because the other faculty members said he was wasting his time. And those kinds of stories are just great fun. Oh, my goodness. I, I suspect the current faculty of Yale would not be super excited to hear that part of the podcast. I wonder what Edson Galladay thought about the Wright brothers and if he ever had regrets once he saw their machine. He actually, he stayed, he went back to aviation a little bit. Um, he seemed to be someone who kind of accepted that this was the process. He, he, he appears to be a, you know, a perfectly nice fellow who did all he could. He went back, he, played, he, he, he got involved in aviation later, but he never, as far as I could tell, expressed any bitterness or any regrets or any anger at his faculty members for denying him this. There were a lot of people like that back then, um, people who were just very excited to be involved in the process. It was something so new, very much kind of like computer programming, when you, where you get people doing open source, um, like Linux, open source uh, software, where they're much more interested in simply moving things forward and being involved than they are in getting credit personally. And I think Galladay was one of those people. I like the analogy or the connection you've drawn to computer science and coding today and the and the huge flowering of ideas that come out of sort of a, a, a reframing of ideas of what's possible, that aviation sort of broke the barrier between uh, the surface of the earth and the sky and everything you could do now that that barrier was permeable. And then coding today, coming up with a whole new language of how to describe the world and how to move through it. I think that's a fascinating connection for young readers to think about. You obviously did a huge amount of work for this book, and it shows so well in what is inside the covers. But I'm suspecting that there was quite a bit of material that did not make it in between the pages. So how do you edit down all the great material that you find? It is very often, it is extremely painful. It is much, much harder to leave things out than it is to find ways to express what you're putting in. There were so many other pioneers. There were so many other incidents. There was another woman, Blanche Stewart Scott, who solo drove across America. Remember, the automobile was new, too, back in the 1907 and 1908. Driving across the country, the first, the first uh, automobile trip across the country didn't take place till 1903. And Blanche Stewart Scott drove across the country on her own and then turned her interest to aviation, became, became a stunt flyer, you know, an exhibition flyer like Harriet Quimby. In fact, they were friends. And then when she left that, she went to Hollywood. Hollywood and became a screenwriter. And Blanche, I think, I think Blanche Scott, Scott is mentioned briefly, but she's there. There's another amazing story that you can't put in. There were so many people doing all sorts of interesting things, and there were other. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't just the, the exhibition flyers. The whole process of invention was this book 
could have been four or five times the length that it is, but each time you have to you have to choose it. It's the biggest challenge, and it's the same challenge to write for adults when not nonfiction for adults. You have to find a way to tell the story. You have to find a way to hit all the important points. You have to find a way to tell the story fairly. So you're not leaving out a process or a person or an invention or a failure that is absolutely key to the whole picture. But at the same time, you have to figure a way to do all of these things while leaving out material that you would otherwise have, you know, you would have loved to put in. For someone like me, the biggest compliment I can be paid is when someone says, wow, I really have to go and learn more about this. I'm going to go to Aeronautics Magazine. There's a, by the way, it's on it's something called Internet Archive. You just go on and you look at Aeronautics Magazine, you leaf through the pages. You know, I'm hoping that when this book comes out, people will come and say, I looked through Aeronautics Magazine and I saw this. I saw a picture of Wilbur Wright smiling. There's no pictures of Wilbur Wright smiling that you can see anywhere else. He had lost his teeth in a, in a kind of hockey accident when he was younger and there's almost no pictures of him smiling, but there's one in Aeronautics Magazine. So what I'm hoping is that the readers are interested enough in what they see in Higher, Steeper, Faster that they want to go and kind of follow along and hit some of the places where I did the research and find out all of this amazing material that couldn't fit in. Well, Lawrence, you have certainly given me several ideas because I'm very fascinated by the connection between women pilots then turning into screenwriters because those don't seem like jobs that necessarily go together, but clearly there's something in the air there that that connection is made, and I'm fascinated by how that would happen with Harriet and Blanche both. Just amazing nuggets of information. I love that the book includes a fantastic index and lovely notes uh, so that readers can learn more. But I'm intrigued. Uh, I know a number of authors and illustrators, as they're working on a particular project, something about that project will spark an idea that turns into their next project. Was there anything about working on Higher, Steeper, Faster that is bringing you or leading you to your next project? The end of the 19th century, and we think of the time that we live in now as one of the great eras of innovation, where everything changed, and it is. Electronic, electronic communication has changed the way we uh, read, the way we think, um, the way we communicate. There is no question of the incredible impact. But the period at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, you had the airplane, the automobile, the submarine, you had Einstein's theory of relativity. You had J.J. Thompson discovering the electron, which is the basis of every bit of communication we do today. You had um, Marconi and wireless communication. You had Freud and theories of the unconscious mind. You had refrigeration, the wide use of electricity. It, it is an amazing period. So the answer is, yes, this was a period for me that I look at and I see one 
brilliant inventor after another. And more than that, I see the process by some, whereby some of the inventors were very successful in not only simply developing their invention, but turning them into businesses like Henry Ford and others who were not successful at all in the, in the business. I'm looking into, into a book for adults on the submarine, and there's a man named John Philip Holland who was utterly brilliant and invented the modern attack submarine and nobody's heard of him. So yes, the answer is it's always, one thing always inspires you to move on to the next. Well, Lawrence, thank you so very much for this time with each other. I know I'm inspired to learn more and I hope that readers of higher, steeper, faster, whatever their age, will also be inspired to find out more. Thank you so much for joining us today. Victoria. It's been great fun for me. This has been Victoria Stapleton with Lawrence Goldstone, author of Higher, Steeper, Faster, The Daredevils Who Conquered the Skies, on bookshelves, in libraries, and bookstores all over the place, near you, around the corner, and on your computer. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.